Hello, and welcome to the Saga of Japan podcast with Charles Shanahan. Episode 7, The Fall of the Soga, Part 2. After having his uncle's family assassinated, Amishi and his ruthlessness is now known throughout Yamato. However, if he was willing to have his own family members assassinated when they spoke out against him, why not do the safe thing and dispose of Yamashiro while your emperor is on the throne? After all, wouldn't this have also dealt with the problem of Marise and other potentially rebellious lords? A few things likely prevented this. First, one of the reasons Yamashiro's claim was so strong was his relation to the late prince Shotoku's son. And Shotoku had essentially been a member of the Soga clan. In the battle against the Mononobe, Shotoku fought alongside the Soga in the pivotal fight and helped spread Buddhist reforms right alongside Umako. To outright kill the foremost son of Shotoku, who has not even been dead for 10 years at this point, was a dangerous move that could turn even more lords against him. Secondly, unlike Marisei, Emishi's uncle, Yamashiro had waited patiently, not speaking out against Emishi or the Emperor Jomei. Therefore, there was no overt reason Emishi could use as an excuse. This adds up to the logical conclusion that killing Yamashiro would actually hurt the Soga clan more than it would help. Jomei ruled for several years, growing his family and writing poetry, which I suppose is all you can do when you're letting Amishi run the show. Among his children is Prince Naka no Oe. A young teenager in the 630s, Prince Naka was brilliant, politically savvy, and studied under Confucian teachers. Jomei was undoubtedly proud of his son, who would make a fine heir. However, the fires of conflict are stoked once more in 641 when Emperor Jomei dies suddenly, at the age of 49. Prince Yamashiro still maintained his strong claim, as he had previously when Suiko died. But so did Prince Naka. However, to Prince Naka's detriment, he was only 16 and therefore not old enough to take the throne. So Prince Yamashiro's time has come, right? Unfortunately for Yamashiro, Soga no Emishi still had his own ideas. However, the assassination of Marisei and the growing list of enemies at court left Emishi with too little political capital to force his own choice. Instead, he came to a compromise with the other lords. Princess Takara would be the compromise candidate. While not his first choice, Emishi probably thought she would be easier to control than Prince Yamashiro. Furthermore, when Takara ascends to the throne as Empress Kogyukyu in 642, she rewards Emishi by reaffirming his titles and power, which is just shy of absolute now. Remember that Soga no Emishi enjoyed generational political power, the foundations of which were first laid by Soga no Iname, his grandfather. From Iname, powers had passed to Umako, who expanded these powers after defeating the Mononobe and pushed for the adoption of Buddhism, among other reforms before passing on his roles and powers to Emishi. Emishi has begun to groom his own son, Iruka, to inherit his position one day, as Emishi's father, Umako, had done for him. Emishi may have been what we would call Machiavellian, self-serving, politically ambitious, and authoritarian. Yet, when it came to cruelty, Emishi was nothing compared to his son. Iruka was a cruel and power-hungry man. The people whispered that if he dropped items in the street, no robber would be brave enough to try and steal from him. A vain man, when fundraising and negotiating materials for his grandfather's tomb, he simultaneously did the same for his own future tomb, designing one befitting an emperor. For these and any other construction needs, Iruka utilized slave labor. To rival clans such as the Nakatomi and others, it seemed that the Soga clan leaders were styling themselves as emperors, not just with their own ornate tombs, but in unrestricted powers. The picture that has been passed down to us through admittedly limited and biased histories paints a narcissistic man, unable to see any flaw with himself and unable to take criticism. 
he was known to fly into a rage at the slightest provocation and use force at the slightest excuse. First and foremost, Irika wanted all the power he could grasp and therefore sought to eliminate anyone who could pose a threat to him. However, while he had all the political ambition of his father, he had nowhere near the same cunning and strategic ability to use it intelligently. Their list of enemies had grown so long that Amishi and Irika hired hardened men as bodyguards, constructing large fortified palaces for themselves. Their grip on power was aided by foreign support from China and Korea, and the Soga even became the favorite clan of the Ainu, an indigenous group of Japan. Unlike Soga no Iname and Umako, who were happy to be kingmakers and the power behind the emperor, it seemed Amishi and Irika would not stop amassing power until they themselves overshadowed the imperial house. We know at least some of this is likely exaggerated, as the way the Nihonshoki text records this is nearly comical, portraying Amishi and Irika as mustache-twirling supervillains. At one point, Amishi even sings aloud about his secret ambition to take the throne. While Amishi used his power with at least some precision, Irika wielded his more like a drunken, blindfolded baboon on cocaine in a china shop. For example, Amishi had eliminated Marise only after having a public excuse, while holding back against Yamashiro due to the previously mentioned reasons. Even just an attempt to kill Yamashiro would be a move of a colossal idiot. Enter once again, Irika, colossal idiot of the Soga. Irika, thinking he was eliminating potential threats, made no less than 23 of Shotoku's children commit suicide before setting his eyes on Prince Yamashiro in 643. Dispatching soldiers to Yamashiro's residence, seeking to finish off the chief successor of Shotoku, his forces were met by the servants of Yamashiro, who rushed to their lord's defense, fighting so vigorously that Irika's soldiers described their ferocity as one man was as good as a thousand. Sustaining heavy losses, the soldiers chose to take a more indirect approach, deciding to burn Yamashiro and all of his servants alive by lighting fires around the compound. In the fighting, Yamashiro had anticipated this may be their next move, preparing accordingly. Taking the bones of a horse, he threw them into his room. Why he had horse bones at hand so quickly, I'm not sure I want to think about too much. In any case, the bones set, he took the younger members of his family with him and fled to nearby Mount Ikoma to hide. After some time, the compound had been reduced to ashes, and the soldiers moved in to search it. Finding the horse bones, and obviously not being well-versed in forensic science, they concluded that Yamashiro had perished in the fire and returned triumphantly to Irika. We need to get these guys a CSI show. Absolutely top-notch detective work. While Irika celebrated and prepared to tell Amishi of the great victory he had scored for the Soga, Yamashiro and his family hid on the mountain with no food or water, believing that revealing themselves would be certain death. Dehydrated and at the end of their rope, one of the family members asked Yamashiro to take them east, make a new headquarters, and raise troops before returning to fight. Surely they could take the enemy by surprise with success, as Iruka believed them dead. Yamashiro's reply is recorded in the Nihon Shogi as, quote, If we did as you say, we should certainly succeed. In my heart, however, I have desired for years not to be a burden on my people. For the sake of one person only, why should I distress the 10,000 subjects? I do not wish it to be said by future generations that anyone lost a mother or a father for my sake. Why is it only that when one wins a battle he is called a hero? Is he not also a hero who has made his country better by sacrificing his own life? End quote. A profound and noble sentiment, but the decision was now out of Yamashiro's hands. During their time upon the mountain, 
a local had spied upon them and immediately took his information to Irika, who flew into a rage, of course, and immediately raised an armed force in preparation to hunt down Prince Yamashiro. One imperial prince advised Irika to wait for Yamashiro to come out of hiding. Between starvation and dehydration, they could not stay hiding forever. Understanding that the imperial prince was correct, but unwilling to just let it go, he dispatched a smaller force to comb the area. To his disappointment, however, the smaller force did not find Yamashiro. Suffering and likely close to death, Yamashiro and his family members went into the temple of Ikaruga, a gorgeous temple founded by his father, Prince Shotoku, in 606 that you can still visit today. Learning that the prince had come out of hiding, Irika's soldiers promptly surrounded the temple. It was clear there was no escape. Yamashiro sent a messenger to the soldiers, saying, If I had raised an army and attacked Irika, I would have won. But I was unwilling to destroy the people for it. I deliver myself to Irika. End quote. On that day, in 643, together with the younger members of his family, Prince Yamashiro committed suicide. The soldiers and locals were shocked, moved by such an incredible display of patriotism to his kingdom and loyalty to the people. In his final act, Yamashiro had displayed qualities of leadership and sacrifice, a rare quality up to this point. Irika was elated that he had triumphed over Yamashiro, successfully stomping out another Shotoku heir. When Amishi found out, however, he was absolutely furious at his son, bellowing at him, Ah, Irika, you are exceedingly foolish, and you are a slave to your own outrage. Is your own life not precarious? Strangely, it was more precarious than either of the men knew. For the last 100 years, the Nakatomi had not forgotten their differences with the Soga. They had allied with the Mononobe in opposing Buddhism, and instead advocated for Shintoism. When the Mononobe, a clan of experienced soldiers, was defeated by the Soga and Shotoku, the Nakatomi knew that in a head-to-head fight they did not stand a chance. Instead, while the Soga had been pushing foreign reforms in Buddhism, the Nakatomi had become integral to the Shinto religion, taking major positions of power within the Shinto hierarchy. To the average person, the Nakatomi clan was synonymous with Shintoism, and the leader in 643, Nakatomi no Kamatari, was no exception to this trend. The Neon Shoki records Kamatari as a man of loyalty and strong character, who was far more open to foreign ideas and reforms than previous Nakatomi leaders, although he was still not in favor of Buddhism. Kamatari seethed with hatred at what Irika had done, and saw it as an upheaval of harmony and order in Yamato. This was an incredibly evil act. In fact, maintaining harmony was so important that it was the very first article of the 17-article constitution written by Prince Shotoku that taught morality. As Aimishi had been consolidating power and Irika abusing it, Kamatari had been making the social rounds in the imperial house, becoming friends with many potential heirs, trying to determine who might be most suitable to rule. Eventually, he settled on Prince Naka no Oe. Prince Naka had been too young when Jome died to succeed his father, but now he was of proper age. With his natural intelligence and ability, he would be the best choice. Kamatari tried early on to learn what Prince Naka's ambitions were, and if he even had the desire to rule. But Prince Naka held his thoughts and aspirations close to his chest. How did Kamatari overcome this? The Nihon Shoki explains that the two eventually became friends in confidence during, and I must quote translator W.G. Aston here, a football party. In order to not arouse suspicion around their new friendship, Kamatari began studying Chinese ideas under the same teacher as Naka, taking walks with the prince to and from the lessons. It's on these walks together that they discuss and plan how to deal with Irika and the Sogo once and for all. 
Over time, the scheme took shape. First, Naka would take a Soga daughter as consort, strengthening his claim to the throne once Irika and Amishi had been dealt with. Kamatari and Naka decided that Naka would tie the knot with a daughter of Soga no Kuriyamada no Ishikawa no Maro. For the sake of this episode not stretching into hours, we'll just call him Maro. Once the alliance was complete, Maro was brought into the plan that Kamatari and Naka had cooked up, and he readily agreed to it. Meanwhile, Irika continued to exercise his power without restraint, styling his own children as princes and princesses. After Amishi's warnings and the death of Yamashiro, Irika began always traveling with a bodyguard contingent of at least 50 soldiers. Before long, Prince Naka and the others had finalized a date to carry out their plans. The resulting event would be referred to in history as the Ishii Incident. On July 10th, 645 CE, commemorations and memorials would be presented before Empress Kogyoku in the Taikyokuden, the Great Hall of Audience. Maro would be in charge of reading these memorials and commemorations from Korea out on that day. A member of the Soga clan himself, Irika would be more at ease with Maro than Kamatari. When these memorials were read out, Irika would be vulnerable as his armed guards waited outside for him to depart. However, Irika was a suspicious man. Not only did he travel with armed and skilled bodyguards, but he also wore his sword day and night. To circumvent this, two precautions were taken. First, Naka would hide a spear in the Imperial Hall. Second, Naka and Kamatari would bribe entertainers in the palace to distract Irika, making him laugh and putting him at ease, which resulted in him unbuckling his sword belt before setting it aside. Naka also had the palace guards under his sway, likely with more bribes, and ordered the twelve palace gates to be closed and locked during the reading of the memorials, preventing Irika's armed escort from joining him inside once things were set in motion. Kamatari and his people waited outside, surrounding the hall and hidden, armed with bows and arrows. Four guards were given swords in order to attack and kill Irika during the reading of the Korean commemorations by Maro to Empress Kyogyoku. When the moment came, Prince Naka no Oe gave the signal for the guards to attack. They began their approach, but slowly lowered their swords, frightened and unable to see the murder sack through. Kamatari tried to verbally encourage them to continue inside and complete the assassination, but the guards stood frozen in fear. Maro began to fear that he would finish his reading with Irika still alive, the deed incomplete, and their opportunity missed. Should Irika escape and learn of the failed plot, all of their lives would be forfeit. Maro's hands began to shake, and his voice cracked as he read the memorials aloud. Sweat began streaming down his face. Irika noticed this peculiar behavior from his relative, and asked why he was trembling. Maro answered by saying it was his proximity to the Empress that made him so afraid, so humbled, causing an involuntary reaction with his body. Prince Naka no Oe, seeing their plan dangerously close to failing, leaped into action himself. Taking the hidden spear, he suddenly slashed Irika, cutting his shoulder and head. Wounded, but very much alive, Irika suddenly stood up. As Naka had rushed Irika in front of the Empress, Kamatari had not been far behind. Using his sword, he cut Irika's leg as he stood up from the ambush. Irika doubled over, rolling himself near to the Empress, pleading, quote, She who occupies the hereditary dignity as the child of heaven. I am her servant, unconscious of any crime. I beseech you to make an examination into this. End quote. Shocked, the Empress spoke to Naka, saying, quote, I know of no crime. What is the meaning of this? End quote. Naka claimed to his mother that Irika planned to destroy the imperial house and take the throne for himself. The Empress, still reeling from these events, left the room to consider the case and the charges. Was she to believe the man who put her on the throne, or her own son? In the end, 
It did not matter. As soon as she departed deeper into the palace, the soldiers had regained their nerve and descended upon the wounded and helpless Irika. A famous scroll from the Edo period, called the Tonomine Engi Scroll, depicts the beheading of Soga no Irika in the Great Hall of Audience. Prince Karu, a friend to Kamatari, left the hall and announced to his people that the Koreans had slain Irika and that his heart is sore before entering his bedroom and refusing to come out. Prince Naka and Kamatari moved quickly, gathering the ministers and displaying the body of Irika before them, before having it delivered to Amishi. Furious with rage, Amishi orders troops armed and armored, ready to seek revenge against his son's killers. In a cunning move, Prince Naka had already sent a general, who instructed the Soga soldiers that they should make sure they know the cause they are fighting for, because the Soga clan will technically be in rebellion, and only death awaits rebellious soldiers. Upon hearing the story, the Soga soldiers began to doubt their cause. The leader of the troops said, quote, It is not doubtful that to dare tomorrow swift execution awaits Amishi. This being so, for whom should we fight to no purpose, rendering ourselves all liable to be put to death? End quote. Essentially, why fight for a jerk like that whose life is already forfeit while you can still save yourself? Flinging his sword and bow away, the soldier left, with the other troops following his lead, abandoning Amishi to his fate. The next day, with his residence surrounded and execution certain, Amishi set fire to the compound with himself still inside. The towering inferno consumed not only the Soga leader, but also resulted in the destruction of Japan's earliest histories, imperial diaries, and sacred treasures safeguarded by the Soga. Of all the historical records, only the Koki, another text written by Umako in Shotoku, was pulled from the blaze in time. Later, it was presented to Prince Naka no Oe, but sadly, it has since been lost to time. The Ishii incident, in essence, is the downfall of the Soga clan, and the end of a generational power that stretched back to Soga no Iname. The assassination in the presence of the Empress was considered a sacrilege that pollutes the spirit of those who are nearby as well as the place itself. Empress Kogyoku's spirit was considered to have been deeply affected as the next morning she would abdicate the throne. Prince Karu would then be enthroned as Emperor Kotoku, with Naka no Oe named as the heir. The only remaining senior Soga member was now Maro, Prince Naka's new father-in-law. Not long afterwards, however, he was falsely accused of treason and committed suicide. With his death, the Soga clan's time is over. After many years in conflicts, the Nakatomi had won. A new chapter in Japan will soon begin, as Prince Naka no Oe and Kamatari will be the ones who control the destiny of Yamato, guiding the kingdom into a new century of reform. As always, thank you so much for joining us on this journey through the history of Japan. I hope you enjoyed this two-part episode. I've taken the time to put sources in the show notes. You can contact me at the website listed in the notes or at twitter.com sagaofjapan. I deeply appreciate you taking the time out of your day to give a listen to the Saga of Japan, and I hope to see you next time.